Then David fled from Nioth to Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, By no means, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me, or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father." And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to respond to it as we ought, uh, that our hearts uh, might grasp uh, the implications of your gospel and our relationships with each other. Uh, We bless you for this opportunity to dig into your word, and we pray that your spirit uh, would teach us, that uh, your spirit would uh, overcome any of the weaknesses of our own flesh, and that you would enable us to glorify you in our responses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Dr. Samuel Johnson is a, uh, an amazing scholar. Uh, he uh, was the writer of probably the most famous English dictionary prior to the Oxford Dictionary, uh, wrote all kinds of things, but not only was he an academic, he was one of those rare people that also uh, was able to have a very practical and down-to-earth kind of a wisdom. And relating to the subject that we're going to be talking about today, 
He said, a man, sir, should keep his friendships in a state of constant repair. Uh, like ships, like automobiles, like everything else in life, our friendships need to be kept in a constant state of repair. And uh, I think that statement that he gave implies four things. It implies, first of all, that words and misunderstandings can hurt our friendships. It implies, secondly, we ought not to allow those hurts to make us ditch our friendships. It implies, thirdly, that it's very easy and frequent that uh, we can bring those hurts into each other's lives. In the multitude of words, there is no lack of sin, Scripture says. And it implies, fourthly, that we should not be surprised. Any more than that uh, our automobiles frequently require repair, we shouldn't be surprised when our friendships require repair as well. Uh, there are uh, times where I think we allow hurts to bring barriers. And uh, I would hope that you wouldn't throw away an automobile just because there's a dent in the fender. Some people are tempted to do so. But you fix it, right? And in the same way, I would hope that we would not take the easy way out and just make new friends every time that there is some kind of an offense that comes against us. I'm just shocked at the number of times that people allow slight offenses to alienate them from dear friends, people that they love. And what I want to urge us to think about is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just applying to the beginning of our Christian lives, but pervading and, and influencing every aspect of our lives, including our relationships. Now, we've already seen in a past sermon that Jonathan and David were dear friends, and it was a very lasting friendship. And yet in this passage, both of them hurt each other, hurt their feelings through the careless words and the misunderstandings that they have. And we're going to start, first of all, with Jonathan's misunderstanding of David. Let's begin reading at verse 1. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now, David is speaking out of the emotion of the moment. And who wouldn't speak out of emotion? Because he's just barely escaped by the skin of his teeth. And uh, uh, Jonathan's father is hunting him down like a dog. Now, Jonathan's not aware of this. But David is speaking out of emotion. His adrenaline is probably coursing through his veins still at this point. And it's in situations like that that we tend to speak emotionally. We're not always the most careful with our words, and we can get ourselves into trouble. And this is precisely what happens here. Now, David is not trying to accuse Jonathan of anything, but the emotional way in which he is speaking this probably makes Jonathan feel as if he's somehow implicated, as if he's accusing Jonathan in some way. What have I done? What is my iniquity? Now, it's perfectly appropriate to ask such questions like that of Saul, because Saul's been trying to kill him, but Jonathan's not aware of what's happened in chapter 19, and Jonathan may be a little bit upset that he's asking questions this way, and because Jonathan is very clear as we go through this, absolutely is certain that his dad could not be doing this, he's going to feel a little bit upset with what Jonathan is saying. What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? 
Have you ever watched the reactions? I love watching people uh, when I'm going different places, but have you ever watched the reactions of people at the front desk when somebody's been bumped from a flight in the airport and they're yelling at uh, the person, the clerk there? Now, the clerk's not, it's not his fault, you know, that there are, he's trying to fix the problem, but he's getting yelled at, and it's so easy to become defensive and to get upset with a person who's upset uh, with you. Uh, or perhaps you've been at the front desk of a hotel, and watch somebody venting. Uh, I've watched this a number of times. In fact, I had a friend who vented. I, I was like really shocked that this guy could be so, so angry and so forceful about uh, the room that he had gotten. Now, in their better moments, people who are venting against the guy at the front desk you know, would probably say, I know, it's not his fault. But this guy is so identified with the airport or so identified with the hotel that you know, you're, I, you're almost treating them as if they're part of the problem. And so they're the first ones with the barrage that comes out of this emotional blast. And uh, it's very easy for them to become testy. Such clerks need to learn, hey, this person's not mad at me personally. Uh, he's got a problem and I need to fix the problem. Good clerks are experts at doing that kind of a thing. They try to separate between the problem and their words being personal, you know, taking the words personally. That's a good clerk who does it. It's hard. It's really hard to do it. Now, Jonathan does what every clerk is carefully instructed not to do. He denies that there is a problem. There couldn't be a problem. I would know about the problem if there was a problem. Take a look at verse 2. So Jonathan said to him, by no means, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Now, he may not have realized it, but he's calling David a liar. That's exactly what he is doing. He says, you're crazy. My dad wouldn't do that. He's never kept any secrets from me. This is absolutely wrong. This is not true. Here's how one translation has it. No, you will not die. Listen, my father hasn't done anything, great or small, without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? This can't be true. Now, if you're in David's situation and you've gone through horrendous trauma, you've barely escaped with your life, for him to say, nah, there's no problem here, is going to get you a little bit upset, isn't it? This is exactly, I think, what is happening to David. And he's thinking, of course it's true. I've experienced it. I'm the one going through this trouble. It'll make you upset, first of all, because you're not being believed, and it'll make you upset, secondly, because a horrendous problem is being minimized, right? You don't want that. When you're going to the front desk, you don't want your problem to be minimized. You want it to be taken seriously. And by the way, I hope you guys will just take these applications as we're going through, because I'm not going to repeat these at the, at the end. I'm going to give additional applications in the conclusion. But if you are a David... What I would encourage you to do is to try, I know you're emotional, but try to take some of the emotion out of your venting and try to make Jonathan that you're talking to realize, hey, I know it's not your problem, but boy, I'm an emotional wreck right now, and I want you to try to help me through this problem. Word yourself in a way where he realizes you're not attacking him. However legitimate your emotion may be, try to keep your emotions in check. And if you're a Jonathan... Don't minimize the perceived problems of others. You may think, you know, it's really not a problem. This guy's got all messed up. 
but try to take, even his perception of there being a problem needs to be taken seriously. So you try to take it as seriously as you can. Don't immediately deny the problem or minimizing it. Doing so leads to hurts. I have to constantly remind myself when uh, I'm on a phone call trying to get some technical support that the guy in India who can't pronounce things very well and doesn't know what the problem's all about, it's really not his problem. It's not his fault that, uh, that I'm getting the runaround. And I have to be always reminding myself, don't get testy with this guy. You know, it's not his fault. I shouldn't be taking it out on him. But it's really hard. It's hard to separate the two. It's really hard for children not to get upset with their parents when their parents minimize a problem that is very, maybe it's a nightmare or something else like that, and they're just minimizing this problem. Very hard for wives to keep their cool when the husband comes home and they've gone through a horrendous day and the husband's just playing it all down, okay? These are the kinds of things of which hurt feelings can many times arise. Well, as usually happens, it gets worse. Okay, we're just beginning here. Verse 3 shows David trying to defend himself when he was hoping for sympathy. Then David took an oath again. Now, that word again implies he had already taken an oath. Uh, He's uh, trying to get Jonathan to believe him. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. He's trying to convince Jonathan to believe him, to take his problem seriously that he's facing. But he's also wisely giving Jonathan an out. Uh, Maybe Jonathan doesn't know. He's trying to assume the best of Jonathan. Jonathan realizes that he's not going to convince David otherwise, so he does the right thing. He decides, okay, I'll investigate. Take a look at verse 4. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. He, 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 if he keeps talking, he realizes it's just going to make matters worse. So he figures, okay, what's the big deal? I can go ahead and investigate. I know David's wrong, but it doesn't hurt for me to at least investigate a little bit. I'll go along with what he is saying. And I think there's wisdom in that. Even though both David and Jonathan are trying to be reasonable in their speech, we're going to be seeing emotion gets in the way. Uh, David's emotions have already kicked in, and he misunderstands and misrepresents Jonathan's words and intentions, and he ends up hurting Jonathan's feelings. And really, this is the way it always goes. When we let our emotions have full vent, it just gets worse. (laughs) You know, we add fuel to the fire. Let's read verses 5 through 7. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Now, at first, David is wording himself very, very carefully. Uh, Though even here, his statement, let me go, implies that Jonathan might be reluctant uh, to do so. And uh, that, despite the fact that Jonathan has just finished saying, you know, whatever you desire, I'm going to do it for you. 
So David didn't have to say this. I'm sure David is not trying to contradict Jonathan, but this could have easily been taken in the wrong way. And the phrase, be sure, could be taken in a negative way as well, a patronizing way. But when we get to verse 8, David's emotions make him not careful in the way in which he talks. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Now, this call to be kind to David, while innocent in a certain way, implies what? It implies that Jonathan might be willing to be unkind to David. And in any case, it could be taken wrongly if Jonathan is testy at all. And then remember that Jonathan, reminding Jonathan that he needs to be kind because he has pledged himself in a covenant, is implying that Jonathan might go back on his word. Now, does Jonathan really need to be reminded of that? I don't think so. I don't think so. Very easy to take offense at slight things like that if you're testy. But it's in the last part of verse 8 that David becomes very insensitive. Nevertheless, and sometimes a but or a nevertheless or just one little word can make another person really upset. This nevertheless implies despite the covenant you have taken, okay, despite the solemn vows that you have taken, nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? This is a total misunderstanding of Jonathan's intentions and feelings. Jonathan might be naive about his father's intentions, but he certainly does not appreciate David questioning his loyalty, his friendship, his integrity, or his love. And to suggest that Jonathan kill him? I mean, that's incredibly insensitive. And yet how many husbands, wives, and children say hurtful things in the heat of the moment? It's just because they've allowed their emotions uh, to run wild. They're not being careful with their speech, and they say things they later regret, and uh, things that could be interpreted the wrong way. So it's very understandable that Jonathan gets upset and shows hurt in verse 9. But Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? There was nothing that Jonathan had ever done to warrant the kind of words that David said in the previous verse. After all, it was of his own volition, his own initiative, that Jonathan had gone to David in chapter 19, verse 2, and said, hey, my dad is going to try to kill you. You've got you to gotta hide out. Jonathan was looking out for David's interest. Jonathan came. He intervened. He, he petitioned his father, and he extracted a vow from his father. If you take a look at chapter 19, verse 6, he extracts this vow from, from Saul. As the Lord lives... He shall not be killed. Now, for Jonathan, that settled the matter. Okay? His dad had never kept secrets from him before. He had made a solemn vow. He was not ever going to do to David what David is now insisting he has been doing to him, and that makes Jonathan feel badly. Verse 10 doesn't help. David cautiously asks, well, who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? Now, it's conceivable here to me that David is just trying to be sensitive to the tough spot that Jonathan is going to be in. If you can't come and warn me, who will? And, and I, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not getting you in trouble with your dad, you know, that he will answer you roughly. But based on Jonathan's answer, it sounds like Jonathan thinks David is questioning his willingness. 
He himself swears an oath in verses 12 through 13. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. In other words, hey, I'm not lying. I swear I am telling the truth. The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good towards David. That's his first assumption that David is mistaken. That indeed there is good toward David. That he, He's standing up for his dad here. So he says, if this happens, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. Now, Tsumura in his commentary says even the second part, the phrase, the evil thing, is actually a euphemism. It's a, a way softening because he wants to think the best of his dad, but he also wants to think the best of David. He's kind of conflicted here. Nevertheless, it's clear that Jonathan has hurt feelings. And I think we can understand David if he has hurt feelings because the whole speech shows that Jonathan is still skeptical of what David is saying. Now, to add insult to injury, Jonathan implies that David might kill him when he becomes king and might kill his descendants when he becomes a king. It just makes me shudder to see friends doing this kind of stuff with each other. Why? Because they're not guarding their emotions. And it's really tit for tat because David had already suggested, you know, just go ahead and kill me. And you, I hope you're going to show some kindness to me. And so he gives tit for tat. He says, okay, you show kindness to me and, and I hope you don't kill me. You know, it's the same kind of thing. You, the, the, the words that they have given that hurt your feelings, you give right back. But look at verses 14 through 15. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die. Same words that David has given. Okay, um, verse 15, But you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And it almost makes me cringe to realize the way both have gotten emotional enough that they're willing to accuse the other one of wanting to kill them. Each one believes his own interpretation of the situation and without intending to, makes the other person feel like they are being put into a bad light. Has anything like that ever happened in your marriages? <laughs> to me, it's just remarkable how realistic, how practical the Scriptures are when they describe the behaviors of man. Now, they're kind of at an impasse here, and with lesser people, this might have ended the relationship. David could walk away thinking, Jonathan's calling me a liar. He's willing to endanger my life by wanting to bring me to his dad. And he didn't believe a word I'm saying. With attitudes like that, who needs such a friend? And Jonathan could have thought exactly the same thing. He could have thought, David is allowing the past to totally poison his attitudes toward my dad. He needs to learn to forgive. He needs to learn to forget about the past. Look, I've extracted a promise from my dad. He's never going to hurt uh, David again. He's never talked to me. I know that David's wrong. And David's not believing me. You know, with distrust like that, you know, who needs a friend like David? And I have seen exactly that kind of a downward spiral between friends over and over again where words have been taken wrongly or maybe even taken rightly, but they've allowed these things to poison their relationships. Never able to patch things up again. Now, why didn't that happen to da Jonathan and David? 
could have easily happened. These are strong enough words that it could have permanently brought hurt feelings that would have alienated the two, and yet it doesn't. In fact, uh, we're going to be seeing their relationship is so strong that even at the end of Jonathan's life, David says that he loved him more than he's loved any other person. How did they do that? How did they keep from being alienated from each other despite severe hurts, despite severe misunderstandings? I believe that both were trying to live out the gospel to the best of their abilities. Now, we've already seen they were blowing it along the way, but they were trying to live out the gospel. Imperfectly, but they were trying. The first very obvious way they were trying was by pursuing each other rather than bailing out on the relationship. Now, on David's part, going back to the capital city, Gibeah, in order to talk with Jonathan was a huge risk. Uh, he's left Nioth probably while Saul is still prophesying, but it's still a huge risk. He could get arrested in Gibeah, but it was worth the risk in order to pursue this relationship with Jonathan. Love seeks to pursue a relationship, not to bail out. And all the way through, we see that both did this. In verse 9, Jonathan affirms, If I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? That's the impulse of love. It's to come to the friend. It's to tell the friend. It's to seek his welfare. And uh, despite being hurt, Jonathan still affirms this. Despite both being hurt, in verse 10, they go off by themselves to talk. Jonathan affirms that no matter what happens, he wants to seek David out. And if we would do this with each other, even in the midst of hurts, we would almost always be able to overcome the obstacles to rich, rich relationships. Too frequently, we don't do that. Too frequently, what we do is we roll over in bed and stew for the next hour. Or we leave the room, sometimes slamming the door after us, you know, because we're so upset with the other person. Okay, what David and Jonathan are doing here is not natural to the flesh. It is the gospel that makes us overcome our pride and pursue a relationship. It is the gospel that enables us to forgive one another, even as God in Christ forgave us, which is what Ephesians calls us to do. Uh, we must keep friendships in a constant state of repair. Now, escape is easier than pursuing the other person, but it is only pursuit that will enable us to keep friendships in this constant state of repair. So here's my question. Have you lived out the gospel on this first point? If you have not, make a to-do list. Start saying, Lord, these are the things I want to be praying and working on. The second evidence of God's grace was the undying love that they had for each other. This is not mere human love or human affection. This is divine agape love, which is self-sacrificing in pursuing the relationship. Despite being hurt, verse 17 says he loved him, and then it repeats, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Love has the ability to get beyond the difficulties in the situation and to seek that other person out. Yes, there were offenses. There were misunderstandings. Jonathan was the one with the most misunderstandings. He proves to be wrong. But both of them had misunderstandings. Yet both loved the other sufficiently to work on the friendship rather than ditching the car because there's a dent in it, dent in the fender. Ask God to replace your human love with divine love. Song of Solomon 8 verse 7 says that true divine love is enduring. It says, many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. 
If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Divine love goes beyond the circumstances and makes us keep trying. And I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 some of the characteristics of this love. It says that this love suffers long and is kind, does not envy, does not parade itself, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can enable us to have that kind of a love for each other. One of the homeworks I'd like to give to you is that sometime I would like you during your devotions to prayerfully read through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and pray every single phrase and evaluate yourself by every single phrase and say, Lord, how have I done on this phrase? Please forgive me for not appropriating divine love. I'm just operating on human love, which fails. Please, Lord, give me by your gospel a richer and a richer dimension of this love so that my friendships can grow. God allows these kinds of testings in order to show us how much more we need to grow in the gospel, even in our friendships. Third, both took the misunderstandings in perspective. Uh, They were both saying, in effect, even if the other person has misunderstood me, it surely won't hurt to take their concerns seriously. Uh, They weren't totally successful in doing this, but they they tried. There's plenty of evidence here that they tried. Let's go through some of the verses. In verse 4, Jonathan offers to do whatever David wants, even though he's convinced this is going to be a waste of time. David's misunderstood, but hey, I'm going to do whatever David wants. I don't care if it's a waste of time. I value David. Um, And they're going to know in a day or two who's right anyway. In verse 7, David tries to act as if Jonathan's theory is a possibility. He says, if he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he's angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. So it's not as if David is admitting that he's wrong on this, but he at least tries to let Jonathan know that he's willing to be proved wrong. Okay, he's willing to look at contrary evidence. And honestly, this is a huge concession because David is 100% sure Saul is trying to kill him. He knows Saul is trying to kill him. And so this is a, a great sign of humility and patience that he's saying, Yeah, I'll examine the evidence. (laughs) Again, I'll prayerfully look at that. But this is the stuff of which good friendships are built. I love the perspective of trial lawyer uh, Clarence Darrow. He said, I have suffered from being misunderstood, but I would have suffered a lot more if I had been understood. (laughs) He's basically saying, yeah, we've got misunderstandings and it does hurt my feelings, but if those people really knew the evil that was in my heart, they'd think a whole lot worse of me than they do. So I guess I can put up with a few misunderstandings because I'm just as, I'm just as grateful they don't understand everything that is in my, my heart. And I'm not sure that Jonathan and David were doing that entirely, but they were at least open to the opposite viewpoint. Staying there was hard because the emotions came up But their commitment to thinking well of the other person was an underlying foundation that helped them to work through it all. And I think it's a great example of how we keep our friendships in a constant state of repair. The fourth way that they showed the gospel 
was that they looked to the interests of each other even though they had felt insulted. And this is remarkable. If you understand how emotions work, this is remarkable. Our emotions want to lash out with a flamethrower. Isn't that right? They punch us in the nose with a word. We punch them right back with a word. That, that's the, almost the immediate impulse of our heart. That's the way the natural man works. And so to me, this is an evidence of the gospel at work in their lives. Now, there was some of that punching back and forth. We've already seen that in Jonathan and David. But there's evidence they're working against that. For example, Jonathan looks out for David's interest simply by being present in his friend's life when his friend needs him. He takes the time to, to talk through these issues, even though he thinks, ah, oh, you know, uh, he's wrong, you know, just tell him he's wrong. No, he takes the time to talk through these issues. In verse 4, he's willing to do whatever it is that David needs. In verse 11, he looks to David's immediate safety by taking him out of a situation where other people might see him. In verse 13, he's willing to sacrifice the joy of having David present with him, which is what he wants. He says, hey, if there's danger, I'll send you away. Why? Because I'm looking for your best interests. Uh, he wishes the Lord's presence with David. Now, it's true. It's kind of naive in the way in which he says it. He says, and the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Uh, he doesn't realize that the Lord has left his father quite a long time ago, but I think we need to realize he's looking for David's best interest here. He wants the Lord to be with him. Um, and that makes all of the understandings much easier for David to swallow because David can see, you know what? Even though he's misunderstood me, he's hurt me, he's doing it because he cares about me. He, he really thinks uh, the best of me. And even Jonathan's complaints against David in verses 13 through 16 imply that Jonathan is absolutely committed to David being the future king. Okay, he, he shouldn't have asked David to spare his life. That was insulting. That was totally unnecessary. But he shows he wants David to be the future king. I don't think we should overlook that. His plan for the next three days in verses 18 through 22 shows sensitivity to David's safety. So whatever the mistakes that were in these speeches, both of them show they had the best interests of each other in their hearts. Uh, that's the gospel at work. It's so easy to focus on the negative when we get into an argument and all we can see is the bad things that they're saying that we fail to see the good that's there. Now let's take a look at David's side. He shows evidences of valuing Jonathan's friendship and wanting Jonathan to know what is happening. He doesn't want Jonathan worrying about uh, him without knowing the truth. And I think that's why he risked coming to Gibeah in the first place. It was an enormous risk, but he didn't just want to run, bail out. Jonathan will feel betrayed. Where is Jonathan? He's not going to know the truth, but he wants Jonathan's friendship. He values his friendship. In verse 10, shows some sensitivity, realizing that Jonathan's in a tough spot. In verses 14 through 17, David shows a commitment to the safety of Jonathan and his descendants. He covenants with Jonathan. Now, when people misunderstand you, misrepresent you, say inadvertent words that hurt your feelings, it's a whole lot easier to take that when you know that they love you, they're committed to you. They're not trying to write you off. So when you're in the midst of a disagreement, make, for, make sure you go overboard to express your love to these people, that you're not trying to attack them, you're trying to uh, strengthen the relationship, you're not trying to divide uh, between the two of you. Make sure that uh, the gospel is at work. Now, point E is a very, very important one. 
They kept this misunderstanding private. Verse 11 is clear on that. One of the reasons for going out into the field, I'm sure, was safety. But I think one of the most important reasons uh, was to keep their disagreement that didn't seem to be able to be resolved. Hey, we need to take more time on this. Let's go out into the field where we can privately talk about this. Too many friendships have been thrown onto the garbage heap because they feel hurt and they're discussing their hurts with other people. That not only is reinforcing the dent, it's taking a hammer and it's making new dents because you're, in a sense, attacking the other person by the speech that you're giving behind the back. One of the fundamental principles in the book, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, is Christ's command to go and tell the person their fault between you and him alone. Alone, it says. That is the way of the gospel. And I hope you're evaluating your own friendships to say, Lord, how deeply is the gospel characterizing my friendship? The sixth thing that I see in this passage that flows from God's grace is that they tried to talk things out. Now, we see this all the way through the passage, but I think you especially see it in verse 11. Uh, Jonathan could see this is not going to be a short conversation. It's going to be a while to work this out. So he says, come, let us go out into the field. We're going to have to do a little bit more talking if we're going to be able to work this out. And while it's true, it was the emotional discussion that was creating the problems in the first place, you're not going to solve the problems by, by just uh, clamming up. Some people claim to be friends, but they refuse to talk about the hurts that the other person has. And he says, well, that's your problem. You know, it's not my problem. I'm not going to talk about that. And, and that's wrong. We cannot do that. People sometimes think that walking away until they have cooled off will resolve the issue. Very rarely does it do that. Now, I, I will admit there are circumstances where you simply can't talk with a person because they're so emotional. They're acting like a fool. Okay? You cannot talk with them. But even in those situations, if you change the forum within which you talk, sometimes it can remove the emotion and it can enable you to discuss it. Uh, more objectively. Instead of saying, let's go out into the field to talk this through, Jay Adams says, let's sit down at a conference table. And if you don't have uh, his little handout for how to have a family conference table to work through conflicts, uh, I brought 10 of them with me, uh, asked me for it after the service. It's really cool. It's very a simple approach. When you have a specific table that is reserved for working out problems, what it does is it automatically adjusts your thinking to think, what is God thinking about the subject? And what are the rules of uh, how we ought to be engaging in this uh, uh, conflict? And uh, you're, you're trying to think of a solution to that. You're thinking of the purpose of the table. Now, the purpose of the conference table is to hear the other person's perspective, uh, to write it down, to verbalize it back to them. You say, okay, now I, I want to understand exactly what you're saying here. Is this what you meant? Because I really want to make sure that we're working on the right problem. So you write it down, you read it back to them, and they say, oh, no, no, I guess I exaggerated. It's not quite that. And, and you rewrite it, and you're trying to get what the truth is. What is it that they are, that they are upset with you about so your first goal in this conference table is not to convince them that you are right. It's to listen to the other person. And then they listen to you, and you're trying to work through a problem. Now, the rules, I've got to admit, they do seem a little bit artificial. And some people say, wow, that seems a little bit 
odd. It just doesn't seem natural for me. Well, any new habit doesn't seem natural at first, but there's a lot of people who have said once they started using Jay Adams' conference table approach, family conference table, they said that things that they've been at at impasse for years all of a sudden began to get solved. And so I really recommend uh, that you do this. When the emotions get too high, do what Jonathan did. Tell the other person, hey, I'm sorry I've offended you. Let's sit down. Let's talk about this. I want to understand what, this, what you're upset about. You're, you're taking the other person seriously. Okay, the seventh thing that we see is that both Jonathan and David constantly tried to keep the discussion before the Lord. And you can see this in verses 3, 8, 12, 13, and verses 16 through 17. This makes a huge psychological difference on the direction that the conversation will go. Uh, I remember when I was a teenager arguing very passionately with my dad about some subject, and to this day I don't remember what the argument was about, but I do remember uh, the result of bringing this before the Lord. Actually, it was my dad who suggested this. He said, okay, Phil, well, why don't we pray about this first before we continue with this discussion? and ask the Lord for his uh, wisdom and his guidance, because we want to do his will. And uh, see, why don't you lead in prayer, Phil? And as soon as I started praying, I knew I was wrong. And I said, this is no fair. (laughs) I felt he was playing dirty, you know. Now, I didn't verbalize that. I didn't verbalize that. But I, I realized as soon as I started praying... I got a different perspective on that problem. Well, this is the way we should live all of our lives. It needs to be lived before the face of God. When we live quorum Deo, we will find ourselves, however stumblingly, gradually moving in the right direction. And yes, we will stumble. But this is such a key thing. A person who says the gospel is at work in my life is going to want God's guidance, is going to want... Uh, you know, the, the, the Lord's presence in his life. He's going to sit down with, with the other person and say, you know what, We're, we've not been able to solve this problem. Let's sit down and pray. And you don't pray, Lord, please open the, the eyes of this other guy to the idiocy of what he is saying. What you say instead is, Lord, I know that I can have a veil on my eyes. Lord, please open my eyes so that I can see any blind spots that are in me and please guide our conversation so that you will be glorified. If you have that attitude and you're bringing the Lord into your discussion, even though there may be stumblings along the way, you will be moving forward. It's guaranteed you will move forward. The eighth thing that I see that was helpful was that Jonathan was willing to do the research and take whatever actions would be necessary to find the truth. Now, he was convinced he was right absolutely right. In the next sermon, we're going to be seeing he was absolutely wrong. He had totally false assumptions here. And by the way, that should encourage us. Just because you're 100% convinced you are right does not mean you are right. Do not ever take that approach. I know I'm right. Therefore, I'm not going to talk about this issue. That treats yourself as God, as if you're infallible. What you should do instead is you should say, you know, I really am. I really do think that I'm right. But I know I'm not infallible, and I'm willing to do research. I'm willing to prayerfully think through what you've told me. I'm willing to think about the Scriptures, and I'm willing to say, Lord, please open the eyes of my understanding. When you come to an impasse with someone, just telling them, thank you for this information, I will prayerfully examine this information, 
that by itself shows honor to the other person. You may be convinced that the research will still vindicate your position, but Jonathan's promise was not an empty promise. He was going to thoroughly look at both sides of the question. When you do this, you might be surprised to find your perspective change. I think Jonathan was totally blown away, totally surprised by what the events in the rest of this chapter. Um, a willingness to prayerfully study to see if you're wrong shows that the gospel is at work in your friendship. And then finally, Jonathan reaffirmed his commitment and love to David in verses 13 through 16, and David reaffirms his love and commitment to Jonathan in verses 14 through 15. And this is so important. Even if you are never, after months of discussion, you're never able to come to agreement on some subject, you can still affirm, hey, I'm for you. I love you. You know, this need not come between us. We can agree to disagree agreeably until God opens your eye. No, you don't have to add that last part. But we can agree to disagree agreeably on this, right? I mean, that's what God did for you, isn't it? Wouldn't it be an awful thing if the only way God would be our friend is if we had no misunderstandings and we perfectly understood exactly what the, the relationship between us is? No, God does not do it. He loves us despite the fact that we have misunderstandings. He's committed to us despite the fact that we have misunderstandings. And it shows the depth of love that you have when you are committed to your spouse, you're committed to your family and your friends, even when you don't see eye to eye. It means that winning the person is more important than winning the argument. Now, it's not as if you do not stand for truth. Do not take this in a postmodern direction. Both Jonathan and David affirm what they believe to be the truth. Now, Jonathan ends up being wrong on that. But they're both affirming what they believe to be the truth, but they recognize, hey, I'm not infallible, and I'm not claiming to be infallible, and I'm open to being proved wrong. I'm open to further discussion. Now, in conclusion, I would urge you not to allow irritations, misunderstandings, words that have made you feel insulted let you give up or be soured on your friendships. As Samuel Johnson said, a man's surge should keep his friendships in a state of constant repair. A friendship that never needs to be repaired is likely to be an incredibly shallow friendship. Just like a car that never needs to be repaired is likely to be a car that's not been driven very much. Okay, there are times where love will cover a multitude of sins. There are going to be times where love rebukes uh, a, a, a brother in the Lord. But separating may be an evidence you are not fully applying the gospel to your relationships. I'm convinced that at least some of the people who have left this church over the last 11 years would not have left if they had followed the principles uh, that we have outlined here in this sermon. If your relationship with God undergirds your relationship with others, and if His love for you is allowed to define your love for others, then misunderstandings can actually highlight your friendship rather than destroying it. Uh, let me illustrate this. Billy Graham uh, told the story of two fishermen in Scotland who had been fishing all day, and at the end of the day they were having tea at a, a, a small local inn, and one of the fishermen, he must have been Italian because he's always uh, going with his arms, uh, one time when he was gesticulating with his arm, he knocked the teacup out of the hand of the hostess who was just bringing it in, and it hit against the wall, broke the teacup, and there was a dark stain on the 
uh, whitewashed wall. And he was so embarrassed, he just profusely apologizing and apologizing to the hostess of the inn. And it just so happened that Sir Edwin Landseer, England's foremost artist, painter of, of animals, happened to be present. And he jumped up. He saw the kaflui that was going on here. He jumped up and he says, look, do you mind if I make something out of this stain? They agreed. And Graham uh, called, uh, said that what he had done was a magnificent royal stag with a huge pair of antlers. You can see a picture in your outline. I believe that's what David and Jonathan were doing, okay, with the stain of their misunderstandings. They worked on the misunderstandings. They found that this incident drew them together in an even deeper and more beautiful bond. Brothers and sisters, keep your relationships in a constant state of repair. Keep your friendships there. The more deeply you taste of the incredible love that God has shown to you in the gospel, the easier it will be for you to do so. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much for the realistic portrayals of sin and of grace that we see on the sacred pages of your word. And uh, we pray that we would imitate Jonathan and David uh, in growing more and more uh, into the gospel uh, as we seek to work on our relationships. Help us to keep our friendships in a constant state of repair. We know we're always going to have some sin in our lives, and uh, there are going to be uh, some times where we bring hurts, and the multitude of words, there is no lack of sin. But I pray, Father, that you would help each one here to work through those sins, to work through those misunderstandings and those hurts to a place where the relationship keeps getting stronger and stronger and what Satan intended to destroy actually becomes a, a vehicle for a marvelous painting of your grace upon our friendships. We pray this in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.